Welcome, listeners, to the NK News podcast, recorded here in Seoul on July 24th, 2018. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and joining me today in the studio is Professor Dr. David Schuster. We'll be talking about humor and comedy and film in North Korea and sex symbols and Marilyn Monroe. Once again, NK News is offering a free year's subscription to one reviewer who reviews our podcast, not only at iTunes, but also at other platforms. Also, you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. Don't forget, if you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others so that our listenership will continue to grow. Now, to introduce our guest today, Dr. David Schuster is a historian of modern Korea. His research focuses on cultural politics, film and visual culture, and everyday history of the two Koreas during the Cold War period. His current book project, From Kim Il-sung to Donald Trump, The Making of a Postmodern Circus State, examines the role of comedy and circus in North Korea's domestic politics and its relations with the outside world. David graduated with a BA in International Relations in 2005 from, and I'm going to say this wrong, MGIMO University in Moscow. It may be Umgimo, but I'm not sure. As an undergraduate student, he spent a semester attending Kim Il-sung University in Pyongyang, North Korea. He later received both his AM in 2007 and PhD in 2014 from Harvard University in Modern Korean History. Welcome, Dr. David Schuster. Hi, Jacko, and thank you so much for having me on the program today. All right. Now, when I first got to know you three years ago in 2015, I was writing my own master's dissertation on North Korean comic books, and it was through your own master's dissertation called The Role of Animation in the System of Ideological Education of North Korea, and your follow-up doctoral dissertation titled A Jester with Chameleon Faces, Laughter and Comedy in North Korea, 1953 to 1969. Uh, and you also wrote North Koreans at the Movies, Cinema of Fits and Starts and the Rise of Chameleon Spectatorship, which was published in the Journal of Japanese and Korean Cinema in 2016. Now, those papers were under the name of Dmitry or Dima Mironenko, but now you are David Schuster, speaking as a man who uses one name pronunciation in English, another one in Dutch and another one in Korean. I can understand, but it might be a little bit confusing for some of our listeners. So what happened? So, yes, that's true. There was a name change recently. Uh, it's actually... Uh, the story is uh, very simple. I uh, moved to Israel and uh, got Israeli passport and uh, realized my long time, uh, long time dream to take my grandma's uh, Jewish last name, which is Schuster. And David has always been my Jewish name, which I just uh, legalized and now you know I formally go by what I consider to be my uh, true name, which has always been my uh, true name. So. Well, I understand you have a book coming out soon. Now, at the risk of almost promoting yourself, tell us a little bit about it. Is, there, is it a reworked version of your earlier dissertations and papers? The book is very much an evolution of my doctoral thesis, um, and uh, it's also a major reworking and expansion uh, of that work. I'm very interested in, uh, in laughter, comedy, humor, uh, jokes, and all those things. Uh, and so uh, in my doctoral dissertation, the main focus was very much looking at the moments of rupture within the production of comedy mm. in North Korea. Uh, so, it, Does that have a special definition when you say rupture? Does that mean something very specific in, a, in academic terms? Uh, so uh, I'm looking historically, and uh, the focus is uh, post-Korean War until the 70s. So, you know, uh, second half of the 50s uh, up to the late 60s. I'm looking at the North Korean state's attempts to create what I call politically kosher comedy and also... Uh, looking at how it was dealing with the unintended consequences of comic uh, forms that it created, which uh, kind of got out of uh, hand. The state's further attempts to tame and control these forms. So I use uh, different terms uh, that I coined writing the dissertation, such as uh, gestures, kind of to signify this culture 
uh, essentially it was a culture of nonconformism mm. and um, also kind of the wrong unintended uh, laughter, the inadvertent consequences of making comedy. Actually, to illustrate this point, I often in my talks and uh, in, in my class when I, when I teach this content, I like to show a very well-known probably to the Western audience uh, clip from Singing in the Rain, mm. the American classic. And uh, the sequence is, uh, I call it out of sync sequence, precisely captures very much of the mayhem that was going on at the time in uh, North Korean movie theaters, uh, where the exhibition of films in the movie theater uh, encountered, ran into all sorts of technical problems. Uh, essentially, it was uh, written by a glitch, and that's what I call the cinema fits and starts. Mm. Um, so the, the, the projector was broken or exactly. the lights went well, off or something. Uh, exactly. Uh, it was not broken. It got broken in the middle of the show. Uh. So it was kind of, you always uh, had to be on edge, mm. uh, expecting all sorts of things to happen that really interrupted the show and transformed the very nature of those films that were intended to be educational, uh, propaganda, uh, often with serious political content. So at the end of the day, audiences came to see in the eyes and, uh, of the government and in their hopes, uh, a serious edifying political drama. Mm -hmm. But they ended up enjoying a, a virtual, what I call socialist vaudeville, mm. you know, the circus of a cinema rather than a, a cinema verite. Uh, that the state was trying uh, to deliver. So uh, this is precisely the moments of rupture that I look at. So now to go back to your question about the book, in the book, I theorize and elaborate on the concept of the circus state, as is evident uh, from, from the title. Mm. Um, and uh, What does that mean? Uh, what does it mean? Great question. Everybody wants to know. I, I want to know myself too. <laughs> uh, and hopefully I have or will have a satisfying answer for my readers uh, by the time I finish my manuscript. A good place to start is to uh, evoke a more familiar concept of the theater state. So many of uh, you probably are familiar with the circus, uh, with the theater state. Um, it has been uh, theorized um, about half a century ago uh, by a Harvard graduate, uh, Professor Clifford Kurtz, who was renowned, among, th among other things, for this concept. For many years, he taught at Princeton. So the, the concept was later uh, became very popular and used outside uh, his more narrow context. Uh, he looked at pre-modern Indonesian state. So it was applied to the modern state, uh, researchers of Japan, Korea. Most recently, it's been applied to North Korea mm. um, by, by, by many scholars. I really first was introduced to this concept in graduate school. And I must say, you know, over the years, um, I've had the, my issues with kind of trying to uh, wrap my mind around that and arrived to the conclusion that uh, I, I, f I find the concept to be analytically uh, vacuous and uh, not very helpful. To uh, put in other words, I think what a theater state describes and the, the way that scholars have been using it is really describes a quintessential nature or attribute, probably better to say, of any state at any time whether it's a pre-modern state, modern state. So uh, if there's a political entity, a state, it is by definition, uh, is theatrical. There's mm. theatrics. So uh, it really lacks in any historical specifics. Mm. So what I'm um, uh, talking about here, and this is not a concept that I kind of pulled out of thin air, but rather I was working with comedy for over 10 years and, and studying it in a different context, film, uh, uh, exhibition context, uh, you know, street culture, journals, uh, graphic, um, not novels at the time, but cartoons and, and, and comic art, etc. This is something that really emerged uh, from my empirical study, and it kind of begged itself to be given a name, 
And so Circus Theater really, that's what I come up with because I think it really captured it. So the modern, uh, the postmodern, uh, I call uh, circus state. The reason I call it postmodern is that it really is a quintessential quality of a postmodern political entity mm. state. But of course, uh, it uh, kind of comes of age and in the modern period, it's very much connected with the processes that happen in mid twentieth century crisis of modernity, first capitalist and socialist forms uh, of modernity, the search for a new form of statehood that has a good or better, maybe uh, the best, uh, hopefully, handle on affect, uh, how to uh, control affect, how to manage affect. And so, By affect, do you mean uh, emotional display? Precisely, precisely. Uh, the whole kind of um, repertoire of emotions, affective responses that uh, we have to different things. Probably emblematic of the 20th century modern state would be uh, Hollywood and kind of the spectacle, the show, the showbiz of Hollywood. But it's not uh, the same as circus, nor is it the same as theater. There's an interesting kind of conceptual evolution uh, that we see happen unfold in the 20th century, kind of going from a generic, a very generic uh, theater state, taking on some attributes of modernity, really uh, climaxing in uh, Hollywood, both in its uh, classic uh, student iteration and also what we have now, but really finally graduating with uh, uh, the first decade, uh, the first two decades of the 20th, 21st century, to what I call the circus state, and I think Donald Trump. What you know? Why is Donald Trump even in right, the title of the, the title? Book? Yes. Because it's very emblematic and epitomizes kind of the state of politics uh, that we can call circus state politics. And I think uh, a lot of us have, um, including myself, um, have had a hard time trying to make sense of. But. Uh... When we think of, I mean, in, in non-academic terms, you think of a circus, it's uh, something designed to be entertaining for audiences. And Donald Trump, certainly before his presidency uh, as a reality TV show star, was in the business of entertainment. And some would look at his presidency as having elements or aspects of entertainment embedded within it. Whatever you think of his politics, he's certainly not boring to watch. Uh, is there an entertainment element in North Korea as a circus state? Uh, absolutely. And so that has been very much the preoccupation of uh, North Korean state ideologues of, uh, uh, of the state philosophy of Chiche that we have um, kind of emerged uh, and uh, more clearly articulated by the 70s. Their preoccupation kind of with uh, audience response. If we are to use kind of a more academic film term. Okay. So in other words, they were very concerned with how their propaganda was received, mm -hmm. if it was effective. And they realized that uh, they caught on pretty uh, early on mm -hmm. to the fact that uh, the best way uh, to control uh, the audience is through affect and other things. And uh, if we look at affect, laughter is the ultimate, the ultimate affect that um, also spins a whole... Uh, a gamut of other emotions and effective responses. I mean, to put it simply, in other words, there's nothing better than a good laugh. Right. And on the way there, you can go through the journey of, you know, uh, being irritated and angry and, and, and frustrated, and at the end, you laugh. It's really the most cathartic, uh, climactic experience that you could have. So the whole idea from about the mid-50s in the post-Korean War period um, for the state has been to figure out this recipe, this formula to make an effective comedy uh, that they can pack with political content, of course, as anywhere in, in the world. There's politics in, uh, in every film. But they understood that if they don't know uh, the success behind how 
they can deliver to the audience, then there's little uh, worth in what they're trying to do. And what they were trying to do was really create a new man, a new kind of socialist Chuchia man and a, and a, a deal type. So you said earlier that uh, in the in the early days of North Korean film, uh, that people would often laugh at the wrong moments, at least in the eyes of the state, right? that, that it was, what do you call it, uh, uh, an unforeseen response. And are, you, are you suggesting here that the North Korean state tried to figure out what it was that made people laugh so it could co-opt the, that response in, for its own purposes? Yes, precisely. That was very much uh, one of the reasons, at least one of the major reasons, why uh, they were concerned with uh, the effect of propaganda. And so often um, they sent undercover officials mm. from uh, the film industry to watch uh, what's going on in movie theaters. And after uh, we can find reports, sometimes uh, they were quite humorous, sometimes quite serious, but uh, really uh, describing all sorts of uh, problems that were going on during film exhibition in North Korean movie theaters, such as equipment breaking down, uh, image getting out of uh, sync with the sound, mm. uh, problems with dubbing, which was live at the time. Uh, sometimes uh, movie theaters would be overcrowded and uh, uh, people will try to get in for free and break furniture. So really, the the real show was going on, not so much on screen, right. uh, but off screen in this movie theater space. And they realized that the state itself was complicit in creating this at, uh, environment of, uh, of watching the films. Uh, the technological, the technical problems um, were really created uh, by the inadequate uh, film exhibition uh, network that we have in post-war North Korea. So that was one of the aspects that we tried to remedy. Uh, but also they were trying to uh, figure out what really fails to deliver the effective response of the audience in practice as opposed to what they would think in theory. So they would write out these comedy films, but then they would have to kind of put it to test and see, do people actually laugh? Is it really funny? Right. And actually here, I kind of uh, want to bring up a point uh, by one of the greatest, I think, comedians of 20th century and certainly father of post-war Soviet comedy, Yuri Nikulin. Um, he's often compared kind of uh, to Charles Chaplin, kind of Russian speakers recognize his name. He was a big comedy star in the Soviet circus and film and whatnot. So in one of the early films that he took part in, he writes in his memoirs, they were trying to create a serious drama, but it turned out to be a comedy and very successful. Mm. And he said it's probably one of the few instances when you try to make something serious and it turns out to be funny. Usually it's the other way around. A lot of people try you know, to write a yep. great comedy, but it just right. falls flat. And we all know that. Everybody's trying to figure out uh, the secret behind how to generate laughter. Yeah, it actually, that reminds me of... Um... In the late 1800s, the British author Jerome K. Jerome tried to write a serious book about traveling on the river network from London out into the countryside with two friends. And he wrote this book that's called Three Men in a Boat. And 130 years later, people still read it precisely because it was funny. He didn't intend it to be funny. He intended it to be a, a serious travelogue with some uh, humorous moments here and there to kind of spice it up a little bit. Uh, but it ended up just being a, a very funny book that people still read. And it's one of those rare cases where humor actually transcends across time because it does. What's funny, you know, for example, very few people these days would watch a Charlie Chaplin film and find it as funny as audiences did back then, right? I think there's a lot of confusion around this issue. And I'm kind of glad you uh, brought up this um, famous uh, book and very famous uh, Soviet classic in Soviet cinema, Three Men in a Boat. Um, and that's really a great point. You know, what is it about this kind of transcultural, transtemporal quality of humor? And I think here it's important to understand the distinction between laughter yeah. on the one hand 
and humor on the other hand. Ah. And so I think we often, even including a lot of scholars who write on these uh, topics, yeah. um, confuse these issues quite a lot. So laughter uh, is a universal human condition. It's, it's clear we all laugh. Right. There's no question about that. Humor, on the other hand, it varies from place to place. Mm. So kind of to put it in a fancy academic language, humor has its own geographies and its own temporalities. Uh, in other words, in different places and diff at different times, yeah. people would not necessarily laugh at the same things. But everybody tries kind of to study and to, to write, to create humor, hoping to understand something about laughter and trying really to evoke laughter. So behind all that, laughter is what we want to get at. And uh, of course, there are different varieties of the comic. You know, there's satire, uh, there's humor, there's irony, etc. But uh, comedy uh, really has emerged as a privileged method, as a technique in the 20th century, perhaps the most common in 20, uh, 20th and 21st century because of the rise of mass culture. And really, everybody's focused on figuring out this method, how to make people laugh. So North Korean joke books, uh, such as the ones that I've got, um, these are not things that you study then, sort of choice uh, on humor. I do not study them as an end in itself, right. but I certainly looked at them in the context of my research because it's interesting if we kind of turn to the history of comedy and laughter in North Korea it was very much a result of Soviet policy mm. in the wake of Stalin's death. And uh, one of the changes was kind of a desire to bring in this new critical element. And so laughter was seen as a very important agent to promote this critical sensibility. And so one of the, I believe it was the second uh, Soviet Writers' Congress, where North Korea also had its delegation, they talked a lot about how to make Soviet socialist literature entertaining, funny, a comic. And so it is uh, in this context that when North Korea was liberated and especially after the, the Korean War, mm. because it was right after Stalin's death, when all this literature started coming in in translation and being also reproduced in North Korea, everybody was bent on producing more and more laughs. Humor and satire was a very common feature in most newspapers from the time. Uh, there were satirical journals published, but at the same time, it also generated this confusion about, okay, what sort of laughter are we generating? And it led, it forced the state with the uh, late 50s to, to seek a deeper understanding of comedy and what rises, uh, what, what gives rise to laughter. We think of North Korea as a, a state trying to create a certain emotional response in its, uh, in its citizens. We don't normally think of laughter as being the response that, that, that's designed. We do think most visibly of, of crying as a response that the North Korean state wants from its, uh, from its people. The, uh, uh, the uncontrolled weeping, for example, in front of the statue of Kim Il-sung uh, or the statue of Kim Jong-il at their deaths and the, the annual memorials. And So w what do you think about uh, weeping and crying as, a, uh, as a, a desired affect that the North Korean state tries to create in its citizens? Uh, there's certainly a lot of crying and weeping. Uh, that happens in North Korea and a lot that makes it into uh, the media, mm. uh, the images, the, the videos that we get, whether it is the desired, the ultimate effect that the state wants to achieve. This is a big question. This is not really what my research uh, is pointing to. Probably the best way to put it uh, is that uh, this is essentially uh, two sides of the same coin. We can think of it as uh, laughter through tears, the, the most truthful, uh, genuine way to laugh is when you laugh and cry and, you know, everything. But ultimately, even the tears have to um, lead to laughter. Actually, that's uh, very clearly uh, captured and uh, articulated in North Korean ideology of uh, building a, an ideal Chuche state, kind of this utopian vision of a just 
society that communists, uh, you know, socialists, and also in other times under different names, you know, people always trying to create kind of bring back this paradise uh, or find this paradise on earth. And so to put it short and simple, you, you go through tears, it goes through uh, deprivation and hard times mm-hmm. so that at the end you'll be able to laugh and look back uh, at all of this and and, and really uh, appreciate and, and see it in a very different light. And I think um, here uh, the words that are often attributed to the chaplain illustrate this point well. And he said that life is a tragedy when seen in close up, but a comedy in long shot. That really there's something divine. There's something divine about the comic, about uh, comedy. Anyway, what I'm trying to do is to bring down this somewhat verified ideas and concept to our mundane and existential level and focus on a case study. Uh, the ontology, trying to understand the ontology of laughter. What is its nature? But the only way I've understood studying many uh, practitioners of the comic and theorists, not just in Asia, but around the world, I've come to understanding that the only way to really get anywhere close to understanding this is only through studying very scrupulously the mechanics of laughter. Mm. How it is only through understanding how to make good comedy we can understand anything at all about laughter on a kind of more conceptual level. Okay, let me uh, change track a little bit here and ask you a very broad question about researching North Korean culture and cultural products. What is a mistake or some mistakes that researchers commonly make when looking at North Korean culture? Perhaps the biggest mistake is that uh, really unwilling to remove their own cultural biases and lenses through which they look at a different uh, culture, at looking at the other. Uh, quite often we get more reflection of the self rather than um, any meaningful exploration and study of the object, in this case, North Korea, North Korean culture. And it's even uh, more surprising and frustrating to see this unfold in the field of North Korean studies. If you were just to move to another field, people wouldn't publish this works. Uh, it would get very serious criticism and it would be you know, at very substandard level. However, there's something about, and it has probably very much to do kind of with the hype and the commercial aspects of publishing in North Korea, is that people can get away with that. Mm. Uh, they don't have uh, to remove the, uh, their cultural glasses yeah. in order to uh, put out uh, anything there in North Korea. The audiences have been, I guess, by now trained uh, to be willful recipients of this kind of fear. So that's very, that's very uh, frustrating because there's some kind of uh, unfortunate consensus. Is it important to, or is it possible, to read against the grain when looking at North Korean cultural products and, and find alternative and subversive readings? You have to really imagine not just what the intention was of the producer, right. what do they want to do with it. It's out there. The intention is it doesn't require any research, really. It's plain and simple. Mm-hmm. But really, what it turns uh, out to be in practice, often it's heaven and earth. There's such a big gap. And so a lot of research in North Korea just uh, flatly reads off uh, official statements. This is what we're making. This is what... And people assume that's how it works. Now, most people wouldn't know that satire exists in North Korea, for example. But you write about the uh, North Korean satirical journal, Hwasal. Can you tell us what it was? When was it published? And so on. So Hwasal uh, was a, a journal that was launched in the late 40s. I believe it was 48 or 49, uh, shortly before the Korean War. It was actually published throughout the war, and I believe it was discontinued sometime in the early 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very much a product of the Soviet policy in North Korea that I mentioned earlier of bringing humor and satire uh, to 
uh, the Soviet sphere and kind of trying to remedy the public political uh, mistakes committed under Stalinism through kind of this injection of critical humor. So satire was was seen as kind of as this weapon against uh, a lot of issues that emerge when people forget how to laugh or uh, start thinking of it as a, a secondary and important thing. But that uh, met with a lot of uh, issues in North Korea. It had, among other things, a very strong uh, Confucian influence uh, and continues um, to have it under different names and in different forms. Uh, as you can imagine, probably living in Korea, South Korea, mm. for a long time, laughing at somebody in their face is the worst thing you can do. It's all about saving face. It's all about not pointing out the mistakes, the blunders of the other party. It's, it's just quintessential. And this is exactly, it was like cultural rape. You can, you can think about it. When the Soviets tried, uh, tried to bring in a lot of Soviet Koreans, but not just Soviet Koreans, literary producers, writers, uh, artists, etc., tried to implement that. And that they realized that although the state was uh, asking them to produce social and political satire, even social satire was very problematic. They were asked to mock, to laugh at the the bad customs, the, the capitalist or feudal or traditionalist ways that were supposed to be eradicated as part of the uh, cultural revolution in North Korea. But they realized they're not just laughing at abstract uh, character traits. They're laughing at uh, very specific individuals that are still going to be there in their life. Uh, one of the most difficult things was really to get people to write in, in the genre. I came across a lot of interesting material that just uh, tries to convince writers that it's an honorable thing to write uh, humorous and satirical sketches, for example, and they should take it up. But it really avoids the issue of that it has very serious social consequences for the writer of this kind of material. How has uh, North Korean cultural production changed in recent decades? For example, are they, is North Korea making as many movies as it once did? My uh, focus has, uh, as I mentioned, uh, been very much comedy. So um, I haven't really looked at the entirety of uh, cultural production if it uh, doesn't have any comic element or is concerned with laughter production of comedy. But even in that area, there's been a lot of work over the years. An interesting phenomenon is that uh, satire kind of was um, very much condemned and uh, by the uh, North Korean state in the late uh, 50s, and they tried to create kind of a politically correct, innocuous comedy uh, that wouldn't offend anyone. And they really make a comeback to satire briefly and very carefully. In the 70s, there's some research out there by one of my colleagues, but really in the 90s, late 90s, uh, there's kind of this very careful attempt to use satire Again, I've been looking mostly at comedies, romantic comedies as one of the privileged genres. I must say that uh, one of the best films that I've seen has come out recently. It's, uh, it has uh, been a joint production uh, between uh, North Korea and I believe Belgium and the UK, maybe France. There are a few. Oh, uh, Comrade Kim Goes Flying. Yeah, you've seen the movie. So, uh, in fact, uh, I have a chapter in the forthcoming book uh, mm. devoted to this film. And in many ways, it epitomizes a lot of connection to the circus state. Mm, well, there is a circus element in there, isn't it? Well, the whole film is uh, kind of set uh, in the circus and around the circus. And uh, I was very uh, happy to discover this moving into the contemporary period, mm. that very much the same concerns, the same um, I think the state has been uh, preoccupied with continue to be relevant. And they made a big progress in actually uh, achieving... Uh, the laughter of the audience 
that I would laugh with the film, but not at the film. Yeah, that's obviously what they want, isn't it? When I did my own research into North Korean comic books, I noticed that there did not seem to be any books dealing with the alleged Shinchon massacre of the Korean War or any other American atrocities. And then I, I wondered why this was, especially given the prominence of the, uh, the Atrocities Museum of, in North Korean discourse to teaching young North Koreans, how to feel about Americans, for example. And then I came across this quote in your uh, PhD thesis talking about anti-American movies. You wrote, quote, Critics were alarmed that, contrary to their expectations, some anti-American films produced by the North Korean studio in the 1950s, which showed caricaturized images of the enemy, failed to stir up hatred and outrage among younger viewers. For instance, an action film made during the Korean War, Sonyeon Baltisan, or Young Partisans, was criticized for having prompted reckless adventurism among adolescent filmgoers, while terrifying younger children in the, in the audience with naturalistic scenes of U.S. military atrocities. End quote. So maybe somebody decided not to allow atrocity education to become mixed with education, uh, with entertainment, sorry. Is, is there this kind of separation of, of entertainment from ideological education, you know, anti-American ideological education? We can't really talk about the separation as we would have in uh, Western culture uh, between politics and entertainment. The whole idea that it's fused and the whole... A project um, of the North Korean film industry since the late 50s was really to find that golden mean mm. where politics meets entertainment. Uh, so precisely uh, the problem was how do you get across this content where you want the audience to experience outrage and other and get fired up, you know, for for a good moral cause. Mm without scaring them, without kind of having this unintended. So the laughter is not an end in itself. Probably the best way we could think about it is that why laughter would be, um, as I said, the ultimate effect is that because it makes you feel good. So at the end of whatever lesson you have to go through and, and learn in any given film, you have to come out of it feeling good. And then it will have the, the intended effect. This is not bourgeois society. We don't do art for art's sake. Mm. We don't do entertainment for entertainment's sake. And this is uh, would be incorrect to view any of um, cultural productions in North Korea up till today as just trying to entertain the audiences. If you don't see, actually, they're really learning to, and something they really wanted since the 60s and discovered is uh, to be as good as Hollywood filmmakers. How you go to the, to the movie, you enjoy it, you think of it as entertainment, but then you come out with ideas and you don't think of it as ideas, it's embodied. So how to embody politics and affect? North Korea turns to no other than Hollywood mm -hmm. uh, to learn about comedy. Uh, if before that, uh, we have a very close collaboration with Soviet filmmakers, there's a lot of critical literature translated uh, from the Soviet Union, students being sent to film schools and film studios to get uh, training in uh, Soviet Russia. All this stops kind of abruptly by the early 60s. All of a sudden, we find a lot of writing in North Korean film journals about Marilyn Monroe, about Charlie Chaplin, um, about... Um, Since you mentioned Marilyn Monroe, tell us what you found in a uh, North Korean film criticism magazine about her. What, was, uh, what did they write about her? Uh, very surprisingly... She is presented there in very positive light as a as, as a victim of uh, the bourgeois film industry. <laughs> Even more ironically, uh, she becomes almost co-opted as a symbol of the revolution. Oh. I mean, she's quintessentially in North Korean uh, discourse transforms 
into this uh, symbol of a, a beautiful, innocent woman who um, falls into the hands of uh, lustful tycoons, studio tycoons, whose mind is just set on making profit. And that was part very much of the ongoing attempts to construct this notion of moral beauty, of virtuous beauty, uh, and uh, connected to the revolutionary ethos. Is she the only sex symbol talked about in, in North Korean text? Is there anything more broadly that we can discern about sex symbols? In my uh, research so far, she's the only one talked about uh, in this context and very much becomes the crux of this uh, discussion that emerges about sex sim symbol that is very interestingly and euphemistically mm -hmm. rendered into Korean as a symbol of physical beauty. There's no sex really in there. And that's how she presented. She's, there's no association with sex at all. Literally, she's uh, called Yukchemi Sangjing, a symbol of uh, physical corporeal beauty mm -hmm. and then there's a lot of kind of explanation and elaboration on the term in uh, other writings and other contexts uh, often uh, by way of advice to aspiring or um, fledgling uh, film act actors and actresses to focus not just on their acting skills but also making sure that uh, it's a all-around package and they uh, also uh, can seduce with their uh, virtuous beauty mm. that shines through. Now, uh, what advice would you give to aspiring students of North Korean culture following after you? What are the, some areas that need to be looked at but that haven't been looked at yet? I think there are a lot of uh, uh, gaps, a lot of areas that are waiting to be discovered and covered, uh, and even those that have been covered uh, are begging for more depth. Uh, so my only uh, advice and uh, kind of words of inspiration to students, but also to my colleagues, is uh, to look out for unorthodox, unusual stuff and try uh, the best they can to uh, assess that on its own terms. Mm -hmm. And that's probably the, the best piece of advice I can give. And only then, we can really understand something about North Korea. And if we understand about North Korea as this quintessential other, eventually, hopefully, understand something about ourselves too. All right. Well, that's where we will leave it. Thank you once again to David Schuster for joining us today on the NK News podcast. Don't forget, listeners, you can listen to all of our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website, www.nknews.org. NK News is the leading repository of North Korean research, news, and analysis, and we hope to see you there. And you can send feedback, comments, questions, or guest suggestions to podcast at nknews.org. Our podcast was produced by Arius Dare and facilitated by Chad O'Carroll and Christina Lee. Lastly, a reminder that one random reviewer per week will win a free NK News membership. So please review us after listening and you might win. And share this podcast with your friends because if we don't hit 5,000 subscribers by the end of the year, I might defect and become a movie star in Pyongyang. Thank you and listen again next time. <laughs>